You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Let us not again this evening with our shouts and noisy uproar get ourselves as drunk as Scythians. Let's get moderately tipsy and our best songs sing with fervor. died about 3,000 years ago, and he died in battle. There was a pointed axe wound in the left side of the skull, the kind of wound you get when you're facing a right-handed attacker head-on in hand-to-hand combat. He stood only about five feet tall, diminutive for our time, but par for the course in his. He was buried sitting up with a bronze sword in his lap and a dagger and lance at his feet. The jawbone of his horse lay under the point of his lance. He was between 30 and 40 years old when he died, and he'd clearly seen many battles. And did we say this was a guy? We lied. This battle-scarred, experienced warrior was a woman. This is one of the oldest Amazon graves ever discovered. It was found in modern-day Georgia in what would have been the ancient region of Colchis, a region strongly associated with Amazons of Greek myth. And she wasn't the only female warrior in the tomb. Two others were buried with her. One had been shot in the head with an arrow. Their arrowhead was still stuck in her skull. In the 1920s, when this burial was excavated, most skeletons found with weapons were assumed to be male, But modern DNA testing and other methods of bioidentification have called a whole host of preconceived notions into question. With the advent of modern science, the interpretations of previously discovered ancient burials had to be rethought, and all over the great sweep of territory that encompassed ancient Scythia, a vast, fuzzily defined region in and around the central Eurasian steppes, the bones of fierce female warriors emerged from their grave mounds and began to speak to us. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So Jen, who were the Scythians? I first discovered the Scythians last year at the British Museum. 
But Jenny had already known about them for a long time. Yeah, so there was this incredible exhibit. I knew about the Scythians a little bit already because one of my characters in this book I'm writing is a Hun, and the Huns and Mongols were basically the later iteration of this culture, these amazing, terrifying, nomadic horse archers who lived on the Eurasian steppe. The Scythians were basically the precursors to the Huns and Mongols. But this exhibit showed us that the Scythians were so much more than fearsome warriors. They were also incredible incredible metalworking artists, sewed beautiful and very innovative tailored clothes, were tattoo artists worthy of an epic Instagram account. And they were extremely accomplished horseback riders and trainers. Also, Jenny, the weed saunas. We loved the weed saunas. But the coolest thing about the Scythians, what I thought was the coolest thing, was the women. The women of ancient Scythia rode into battle with their men and were just as fierce and terrifying. And the Scythians were contemporaries of the ancient Greeks with overlapping territories. So the ancient Greeks would have encountered these powerful woman warriors in battle and in more peaceful situations like trading. And it appears they developed a little crush. A massive crush. <laughs> <laughs> the ancient Greeks reinterpreted these powerful women in their own myths as Amazons, imagining them as one-breasted man-killers who lived in all female societies. They even imagined a capital city for them on the banks of the Thermodon River, a place in the heart of real Scythian territory. So the Amazons were the Scythians, and the Scythians were the Amazons. This wasn't a secret even in ancient times times, ancient writers always set Amazon stories in places known to be Scythian country and sometimes referred to them interchangeably. And last episode, we talked about Amazons in Greek myth, bringing you several of the more well-known Amazon stories and discussing their origins and context in Greek society. You might want to go back and listen to that one before you listen to this one, although I think you can, you can pretty much listen to them both in different order without getting too confused, but you have a strong basis in Amazon myth and lore before you come to this episode, and it's, it's kind of cool to have. The thing is, though, that Amazon stories are basically stories about Scythian women told through a Greek lens, which is the most well-known image of them that we have because the Greeks had writing and the Scythians didn't. This week, we're doing away with the Greek lens and talking about these amazing warrior women from the point of view of their own culture as much as possible, because guys, we do have to quote Herodotus. Yeah, we do have to quote a lot of ancient Greek historians and writers when we talk about these women, but a lot of them did interview actual Scythians. So it's, you know, it's the best we get because we didn't have writing from the Scythians, but we do have archaeology from the Scythians, and we're going to talk a lot about that too. We'll also tell you what the Greeks got right about Scythian women in Amazon myth. Some of the ways they're depicted in art and writing is shockingly accurate, and we're going to talk about what they got very wrong. Yeah, because sometimes the Greeks really got stuff wrong. Ancient Greeks and Romans used the word Scythian to refer to groups of loosely related tribes living as nomadic horse archers on the Eurasian steppe, in the grand tradition of the Huns and Mongols who came after them. In the ancient world, Scythian territory stretched from Eastern Europe and the Caucasus Mountains on the western border to central China, Mongolia, and all the way up to southern Siberia. It was a huge territory. Scythians appeared in ancient writings and art from around the 800s BC to the 4 400s AD. One of the first depictions of a Scythian can be found in a relief from the reign of a Syrian king 
Asser Nasser Paul II, 883 to 859 BC. The relief shows a rider executing an extremely difficult Parthian shot, where he faces backwards while riding a horse at full gallop, shooting an arrow behind him with hair-splitting accuracy. This image would have been recognizable to anyone in the ancient world as a Scythian. The ancient Greeks probably first encountered Scythians when they started establishing territories along the north shore of the Black Sea around the 6th century BC. Alexander the Great and his father, Philip of Macedon, both tangled with Scythians in the 300s BC. Philip even had a Scythian wife, and Herodotus wrote extensively about them in his histories in the 400s BC. Herodotus describes the Scythians as not one united people so much as many different tribes sharing certain cultural signifiers. They had, quote, neither cities nor forts, and carry their dwellings with them wherever they go, living in wagons covered with felt tents. In addition to being badass warrior horse archers, the Scythians tended herds of cattle and sheep. They hunted and raided, fighting both on foot and on horseback, using bows, lances, battle axes, slings, and swords, among other weapons. And they buried their dead in lavish kurgans, or barrow tombs, with artifacts wrought in gold and iron, depicting stunning, highly distinctive artwork. And the Scythians had a reputation for having a good time. Maybe too good of a time. One of our favorite pieces from that British Museum exhibit was this quote. Jen, do you want to say the quote? Oh, I totally want to say the quote. Say the quote. I love the quote. Let us not again this evening with our shouts and noisy uproar get ourselves as drunk as Scythians. Let's get moderately tipsy and our best songs sing with fervor. And that's the Greek poet Anacreon, 582 to 45 BC. I love that. Let's just get moderately tipsy. (laughs) Just moderately tipsy. Right. We're not going to go all out, you guys. We're definitely not going to drink unwatered wine. Guys, I have to tell you something. When Jenny and I get together and the Prosecco comes out, we turn into Scythians. It's just, there's no stopping it. Yeah, we do not water our Prosecco. So, the Scythians had a reputation for drunkenness. They were known to drink their wine unwatered, which I approve of, and to be strongly affected by alcohol. They were cheap dates. <laughs> they were so much so that the Greeks, who watered their wine, believed that to drink like a Scythian was basically to get drunk and disorderly. They also smoked weed. And that brings us to the weed saunas. According to Herodotus, quote, they make a booth by fixing in the ground three sticks inclined toward one another and stretching around the woolen belts, which they arrange so as to fit as close as possible. Inside the booth, a dish is placed upon the ground into which they put a number of red hot stones and then add some hemp seed. Immediately it smokes and gives out such a vapor as no Grecian vapor bath can exceed. The Siths, delighted, shout for joy. I love that part. I love how they shout for joy when they're getting high. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't you? I don't think I've ever shouted for joy, but I guess they're having just a really, really good time in their weed sauna. I know. But one of the most striking things that Herodotus writes about were Scythian women. These women rode and fought like the men. They were raised the same and wore the same clothes and in many tribes had authority equal to that of men. This is so rare in the ancient world. Although when you think about the vast territories that the Scythians inhabited, it actually wasn't that rare. It's just that these cultures haven't come down to us because they didn't write things down. Write it down, you guys. Otherwise, you're just going to get your enemies telling your story, and that's no good. 
Other historians corroborate Pomponius Mella, the earliest geographer of ancient Rome who was writing in the 30s or 40s AD, described the Scythians as, quote, warlike, free, unconquered, and so savage and cruel that the women go to war side by side with men. Archery, horseback riding, and hunting are a girl's pursuits. To kill the enemy is a woman's military duty, so much so that not to have struck one down is considered a scandal. Wow scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> so for a long time, accounts like these in the ancient histories were dismissed as myth. But more and more, the archaeology has proven these accounts correct or very close to it. Adrian Mayer, the Amazon goddess, tells us that in some ancient Scythian cemeteries, as many as 37% of the burials were for warrior women. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Adrian Mayer wrote this incredible book on Amazon called Lives and Legends of Warrior Women in the Ancient World. And this is a situation like we had with John Kistler's War Elephants when we were doing those episodes. We relied on a number of different sources for this episode, including the ancient sources. But the one we kept coming back to again and again was Mayer's book. We have her to thank for most of the cool stuff in this episode. And there's so much more she talks about in her book that we didn't have room to cover. So if you're into this topic, definitely go buy it. Adrian Mayer tells us that over a thousand women warrior graves have been discovered from Bulgaria to Mongolia, a distance of over 3,600 miles and as far north as Siberia. She says that in the ancient region of Thrace alone, an area that once encompassed what's now Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece, about 112 women warriors have been unearthed, aged mostly between 16 and 30. To the east of that, in a region associated with the Sarmatians, whose origin story we discussed in the last episode, about 40 women warriors have been found in graves. North of the Black Sea, near the Volga River in Bulgaria, approximately 20% of warrior graves dating between the 5th and 4th century BC belong to women. In the southern Ukraine, 130 graves of women warriors have been unearthed. In southwestern Siberia, approximately 20% of the graves of women found on the steppes contain bows and arrowheads. And it's very clear these women rode to war side by side with their men, as Pomponius Mela describes. Women warriors in graves often had two fingers on the right hand showing significant wear, indicating heavy use of the bow. Also, the battle injuries found on these women are often identical to those found on men from the same cultures. Female skeletons have been found with arrowheads embedded in their bones, pointed battle axe wounds in their skulls, and stabbing and slashing wounds from swords and spears. Modern analysis can paint us a very clear picture of the battles that ended many of these women's lives. For example, battle axe wounds found in the skulls of female warriors are often on the left side toward the front, suggesting that the women were fighting a right-handed enemy face-to-face rather than fleeing an armed attacker. That's such a cool detail. Yeah, and in addition, nightstick fractures on the left arm are very common of both men and women in these warrior graves. These are fractures to the left arm incurred when the women raise their left arms to block an attack coming from a right-handed opponent. And you can also see Amazon women painted in this pose on ancient Greece 
Greek vases, holding up their left arms to fend off an attacker and about to incur a nightstick fracture. There's this one very famous example of Achilles killing Penthesilia from ancient Greek Amazon myth that shows this really clearly, and we'll put it in the show notes. I mean, that's super cool, Jenny, but I totally wonder how they would handle a left-handed attacker because, you know, that's sort of my bugbear. I'm left-handed and that would kind of be your stabbing hand. You'd be something totally different. And if you look at why the left-handed gene keeps repeating because you think who needs to be left-handed, we could all just be right-handed. Yeah, I think that there's a really interesting thing there. If you're a warrior who's right-handed and you have your muscle memory is using your sword or whatever weapon with your right hand, and then you come across someone who's left-handed and wielding a left-handed weapon, maybe because they're unexpected, that would be more difficult to face, or maybe because they can use their left hand, they can sneakily switch their weapon from right to left and totally come in under your defenses. I wonder if anybody's written about that. I bet somebody has. Yeah, and I don't know what the stigmatism of being left-handed in the ancient world, because it's only really recently that stigma has been removed from being left-handed. You know, left-handedness in the ancient world would be a really cool episode. (laughs) I bet there's some kind of ancient history left-handed expert out there who's listening to this right now who can totally give us some details. So if you are that person, let us know because we're fascinated. Absolutely. Get in contact with us. So yeah, real women warriors were not rare in the ancient world. One in every three women you'd meet in Scythia, which is an incredibly vast territory, would have been a warrior. The Greeks sensationalized a lot of things about Amazons, but they also got a lot right about Scythian culture in their writings and art. Everywhere in Greek art, on vases, in friezes, on personal items like combs and bottles and boxes, on public and private murals, and in many other places, you can see accurate depictions of real Scythian women displayed in these Amazon myths. Some things the Greeks get really, really right include... The clothes. They really, really got the clothes right. Right? So the clothes are amazing. (laughs) Remember the story of Hippolyta and her golden belt from the first episode in the series? It turns out that the Scythian women loved belts. And I mean, who can blame them? You gotta um, keep your pants up somehow. (laughs) I know. And, you know, fashionable and accentuating your assets. Right. Gotta accentuate your waist. Gotta give yourself some structure. It's all about the structure. So archaeologists have found numerous belts in Scythian warrior women's graves, wide ones, sewn with gold plaques that would have made them glitter. And I can't think of anything I want more right now than a glittery gold belt. I know, a nice, big, ostentatious, glittery gold belt that totally accentuates my waist. Bring it. Yes, please. As well as the glittery gold belt, they found practical leather ones and iron ones, often with large, ostentatious buckles, hooks, and clasps for attaching weapons because you gotta have practical ones, man. And you know what? That's not all they found. In 1991, a team of archaeologists unearthed a burial mound in Kazakhstan that included a jacket sewn with over 2,400 gold plaques shaped like arrows and stylized lions, a tall, elaborate conical headdress two feet high adorned with gold plaques depicting ibex, horses, snow leopards, and birds, as well as towering gold foil arrows, and a belt decorated with 13 golden deer heads, among many other treasures. Talk about treasures. I know, gold shiny things, Jen. You would be all about this. As we talked in the last episode, that's really all it takes. (laughs) It's all it takes with Jen. She just wants stuff to be shiny. (laughs) Other similarly impressive things have been found in graves throughout the Scythian region. Glittering caves, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Breastplates. Yes. (laughs) Coats. Yep. (laughs) 
animal skins. Bring it. Shiny, shiny jewelry. Loving it. (laughs) (laughs) And other treasures sewn with hundreds of tiny precious metal plaques, as well as beads made of carnelian, jade, glass, and other materials. I mean, yes. I'm very acquisitional right now listening to this paragraph. I just want to take it all home and have it. The idea of an Amazon queen like Apolita wearing an ostentatious golden war belt was probably taken directly from sightings of real warrior women wearing gold applique war belts. So incidentally, in addition to that belt, Hippolyta was said to have a golden spangly cape, which I just think is awesome, both of which were supposedly on display in the Temple of Hera around Tiryns sometime between 700 and 500 BC, and it's possible a real Scythian war belt and cape were used in the display. In addition to the bling, the ancient Greeks often depicted Amazons wearing close-fitting trousers and tunics decorated with geometric patterns, circles, stripes, stars, I would totally have a star one, animal motifs, and many other designs. They were also shown in soft felt and tall pointed caps. Trace analysis suggests that these images were once colorfully painted. The archaeology confirms this. Clothes found in Scythian women's graves include tailored trousers and tunics with an astonishing array of patterns and colors, as well as a wide variety of headgear, such as soft felt Phrygian caps and tall pointed hats, just like you'd see on Greek vases. The ancient Greeks were particularly fascinated by the androgynous nature of Scythian dress. Many ancient historians, including Herodotus, make a point of telling us that Scythian men and women dressed the same in tunics and trousers. Trousers in particular were foreign and fascinating garments to the ancient Greeks. Mayer has some really interesting stuff to say about Greeks and trousers. She says, quote, For the classical Greeks, the very idea of trousers evoked anxiety and ambivalence. I get anxious around trousers too. I mean, I don't. I love trousers. Bring on trouser weather. I get anxious because I'm afraid my fly is down. We're just going to move on. I'm going to stop divulging. (laughs) Just stop. There's a lot of cultural association in ancient Greek society about heroic nudity. And that's why so many Greek heroes are painted naked, Jenny. And many Greek writers, quote, describe the barbarian practice of covering up arms and legs normally left naked to the warm Mediterranean climate as somehow unseemly. And that's from Adrian Mayer. But what may have bothered them most was the disquieting sight of men and women dressed the same. That implied that men and women were somehow interchangeable and could perform the same roles in life, an egalitarianism that the ancient Greeks were both attracted to and repelled by. Same gender outfits made it more difficult to tell who was male or female at a glance. This would have especially made the ancient Greeks uncomfortable because, as Mayer says, they were used to not only discerning male and female at a glance, but of actually catching sight of male genitalia on the regular. To quote Mayer, Quote, this is just incredible. What? I know. Quote, Greek men were accustomed to glimpsing male genitals exposed by miniskirted chitons in daily life. Undergarments were not worn. Two literary examples suffice. In The Assembly Women, an Athenian comedy by Aristophanes, the women appropriate their husband's clothing in order to take over the assembly, but they caution each other to be careful when clambering over the men to take their seats or striding up to the podium, lest their female sex be revealed. And what you might be thinking, guys, is, well, yeah, but Aristophanes was writing a comedy and this bit about flashing the assembly might be part of a joke. But Mayer goes on to tell us that Xenophon of Athens, the famous mercenary soldier historian and like, what a great sort of job description to have. He lived in the 400s BC and he advised Greek writers to, quote, be sure to remain upright when mounting a horse, lest they present an indecent spectacle from behind. You have to imagine if Xenophon had to go out of his way to say it, then it probably happened a lot. (laughs) 
Yeah, actually, if you look at pictures of the Titans that men wore in ancient Greece, not the long drapey toga that we're more used to seeing, but sort of a belted tunic that came to mid-thigh, you could conceivably see a lot of wardrobe malfunctions happening during everyday life. And true, the ancient Greeks, especially men, may have taken this in stride because nudity wasn't taboo for them. In fact, the opposite was true. They found the barbarian tendency to cover their bodies with clothes to be disturbing and unrefined. (laughs) I mean, I just can't. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Like, I can't decide what's worse to get a glimpse of. (laughs) What, a woman or a man in a (laughs) cheaton? Or both. You're just hanging out, you're doing your job, and just people are flashing you left and right, and they're not being gross. It's just part of daily life. Yeah, and I kind of feel like, well, that's also kind of refreshing. If it's equal and you can just be as naked as you want down there, sure. But I have an underwear rule, so you know what I'm like. I couldn't talk to anyone in ancient Greece. I've got an underwear rule. I can't talk to you unless you're wearing underwear. Oh, really? (laughs) This is a big problem I have. I'm not going to ask you, but you know. I'm just wearing a chiton right now. (laughs) I don't need to know. I don't need to know. (laughs) So, Jenny, do you know what else the ancient Greeks got right about the Amazons? What? The weapons. Oh my god, tell me about the weapons! So, Amazons were strongly associated with the type of weapons also found among Scythian women warriors' grave goods, like battle axes, spears, javelins, bows, and arrows, and even slings. Amazons in Greek depictions were particularly strongly associated with a unique type of bow found predominantly in Scythian and later horse archer cultures. The Scythian recurve bow was distinctive and designed to give its arrows added power over vast distance. These bows were not large, only approximately 30 to 40 inches tall when strung, and this is compared to an English longbow, which is 72 inches. They were light and compact, ideal for fighting on horseback. So making one of these bows was a painstaking process that took years. A Scythian warrior's bow would have been one of her most prized possessions. And stringing one was really, really hard. So hard that Scythian bow stringing entered into ancient Greek legend. For instance, during his 12 labors, Heracles had a fling with a viper woman. Half woman, half snake. He and the snake lady had three sons. His parting gift to her was a bow, a heavy, thick battle belt, and some instructions. When grown to manhood, whichever son can string the bow and wear the belt can inherit their mother's kingdom. When the boys grew up, their mother put each of them to the test. Only the youngest, Scythes, could successfully string the bow and put on the belt. He became the mythic first king of the Scythians. You also see the special bowstringing myth appear in the Odyssey, when Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, who don't get me started, sets this challenge to her unwanted suitors. Only the one who could string her husband's bow could have her hand in marriage. Of course, no one could until Odysseus returned, which is what she was betting on. So how do you string a Scythian bow? Adrian Mayer tells us that you have to be kneeling or sitting with the middle of the bow stabilized under your knee. If you do it wrong, the limbs of the bow under pressure can release and suddenly whack you hard, which is probably something that would happen to me. And Totally something that would also happen to me. I would suck at this. I'm bad with objects. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's possible if this did happen to you, you'd have a really bad injury. Yeah, you'd be limping around. And if you're like in a Scythian tribe and they see you limping, it's like, oh... This guy didn't string his bow right again. (laughs) This is the newbie. Right, the newbie Scythian. Noob. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the correct position for stringing a Scythian bow is depicted in both Scythian art and Greek depictions of Amazons, showing that Greek artists were familiar with this very technical detail of Scythian life. The Scythian bows were both light and compact, and this made them a great equalizer between men and women. The compressed design of the Scythian bow meant that arrows could be fired with greater force, distance, and accuracy than they could with other types of bows, meaning women didn't need as much upper body strength as men to be absolutely deadly with these weapons. And interestingly enough, Scythian archers also dipped their arrow tips in viper poison to make them even more deadly. And that totally harkens back to that Heracles myth with the viper women. And I kind of love that detail. I love that that's their origin myth, you know? Yeah, that I didn't even notice that, but that makes total sense why it would be a viper woman because they use this viper poison with their arrows. Exactly. So other weapons typically used by Scythians were also great equalizers. For instance, slings, basically two lengths of rope or cord connected by a pouch that holds a small stone, lead bullet, or other missile. The sling is swung fast in a tight circle and released at just the right moment to fire the stone or lead bullet with devastating force. The ancient writer Procopius claimed that slings actually had a longer range than Hunnic bows, which were basically the same as the Scythians had. Like the recurve bow, the sling does not require a lot of strength and can be used to absolutely deadly effect. So incidentally, the ancient Greeks used slings too. Lead bullets have been found decorated with a winged thunderbolt on one side and the words catch or take that on the other, dating from around the 4th century BC. And I just love that detail. That is such an awesome detail. What would you put on your sling bullet, Jen? I would say Jen was here. Eat this, sucker. (laughs) See you in Elysium. (laughs) Another equalizing weapon that Amazons were often depicted with was a distinctive type of battle axe. These axes have been found in Scythian warrior women's graves as well as in Amazon art. They were relatively small, made of bronze or iron, and had a single curved blade on one side and a pointed spike on the other. These axes, as Mayor points out, were top-heavy. It wouldn't take a ton of upper body strength to swing one hard enough to do major damage to your opponent, and that's just the way I like my axes. It's not a lot of effort for a lot of payoff. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I love that you saw where my mind was going with that. Yep. This is another weapon that doesn't put women at a disadvantage to men when it comes to upper body strength. But that's not to say that Scythian women didn't also wield heavier weapons, such as swords and spears, because they definitely did. All of these have been found in Scythian warrior women's graves, and Amazons in Greek art have been liberally depicted using them as well. So another thing that the ancient Greeks got right about Amazon slash Scythian women's culture is the tattoos. Oh, I want to hear about the tattoos. So the tattoos were another amazing part of this exhibit that we saw at the British Museum. Amazon women were often depicted with tattoos in Greek art. Geometric designs and animal motifs were super common, and Herodotus mentions tattoos as well. He says some Scythian tribes saw a lack of tattoos as, quote, a lack of identity. Herodotus also claims that the more tattoos a woman had, the higher her status. The ancient Greeks, incidentally, saw tattoos as a mark of shame. They tattooed only criminals, war prisoners, and slaves. Other ancient sources, such as Pomponius Mela, Xenophon, Clearchus of Soli, described heavily tattooed women among a variety of Scythian tribes. Clearchus, in particular, who was a Greek writer who actually traveled in Scythia, unlike Herodotus, who only interviewed Scythians in border territories, describes how one group of Scythian women taught another how to tattoo themselves using their belt buckles or the pins from their brooches, which which I just think is a cool detail. Archaeology has confirmed this. Once again. 
In 2003, Scythian mummies found frozen in the ice in southern Siberia were scanned in an infrared scanner, showing, for the first time since their burial in the 400s BC, the elaborate tattoos these people wore in life. And Jenny and I were actually lucky enough to see some of these mummies and their tattoos in that exhibit we talked about in the British Museum. And we'll we'll have a look online and put in the show notes if it's touring anywhere. I'm not sure if it's touring or not, but I do know they have a website that talks about it and has some pictures from the exhibit. So we'll put the link up in the show notes. Definitely. These mummies' tattoos were extraordinarily beautiful, depicting animals such as deer, tigers, sheep, horses, elk, birds, mythical animals. You know I'd be down for a mythical animal tattoo. And geometric designs. The tattoos were deliberately placed to move and ripple when the wearer's muscles flexed. They must have been stunningly beautiful and powerful in real life. Doesn't that sound amazing? I mean, that just sounds incredibly hot. These Scythians must have been so attractive. I mean, how how do people control themselves around these people with their gorgeous tattoos? I just fall all over myself and act like a total weirdo. So like usual then. Yeah, like usual. That's where I was going. (laughs) Scythian women have been found buried with tattoo kits, frequently mistaken for cosmetics in earlier times, which is a mistake. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that the ancient Greeks got right was the equality. Ancient Greek myth and stories about Amazons make a point of describing the women as equal to men. Herodotus and other ancient writers tell us the Scythians raised their boys and girls the same and dressed them in the same clothes. A lot of Amazon names like Antiope, which means opposing gaze, indicate equality with men. And the women's equality to men in battle comes up in Amazon myth again and again. In ancient Greek myth, Amazons might be killed off frequently by famous heroes, but they fare more or less equally in battles with the rank-and-file Greek soldiers. And they are not treated like the weaker sex in battle. They're treated like formidable foes. The fact that Scythian society was fairly egalitarian is strongly indicated in Scythian archaeology as well. In many Scythian graves, male and female graves were almost indistinguishable. Both men and women were buried with weapons as well as tattoo kits, jewelry, fancy combs, cosmetics, and other goods. It's frequently hard to tell whether a grave belongs to a woman or a man unless you look at the skeleton itself. In addition, skeletons of both sexes exhibited similar signs of a very strenuous life. John Mann tells us in his book, Amazons, The Real Warrior Women of the Ancient World, that in addition to war wounds, women in Scythian graves had a high rate of hairline fractures in the spine, a condition called spondylosis or clay shoveler's fracture because it's so closely tied to a lifetime of heavy labor. Their bodies also bore signs of a lifetime spent on horseback. Both sexes were often bow-legged, and John Mann tells us, quote, one 35 to 45-year-old woman in a Scythian grave who had fractures in her right shoulder and forearm also had the fourth finger on her right hand so badly broken that it had solidified into a claw shape, all her injuries being caused by a single nasty fall. And that's just like, every time I read that, Jenny, I just think, oh, my hands kind of go into a claw. I love that detail because it's so real. There's a price for this amazing free life that the Scythian warrior women had. There was a lot of injury. Mm -hmm. It's clear that women in Scythian cultures shared all the hardships of life alongside their men. And it makes sense. In small, close-knit tribes living in extreme environments, all hands were needed on deck. 
Another thing that the ancient Greeks got really, really right about Amazons slash Scythians is the names. And this is one of my absolute favorite, favorite parts of the book by Adrian Mayer. So if you take a look at Amazons on ancient Greek vases, you'll see writing next to some of the women, kind of like in a cartoon. They're not in Greek, these words. They're strings of near unpronounceable syllables that scholars of ancient Greece have typically seen as gibberish or some kind of weird in-joke between vase painters until now. Adrian Mayer had a hunch that these words on ancient Greek vases weren't gibberish at all. She brought in a vase expert and a linguist to look at these words on 13 ancient vases and try translating them, not in Greek, but in the languages spoken in the regions where the Scythian people used to live. And that's just genius. Yeah, and what she found was absolutely incredible. For the first time, these strings of complex, consonant-heavy syllables came to life as words transcribed in ancient Greek but that were actually in the native languages of the Scythian women depicted on the vases. Mayer says, quote, Non-Indo-European Caucasian languages have extraordinarily complex chains of harsh consonants and only one or two vowels. A non-speaker trying to render the sounds with Greek letters would produce bizarre-looking letter strings exactly like those found on the vases. And Mayer goes on to say, quote, What appeared to be incomprehensible or non-Greek words on 13 vases are actually suitable names for male and female Scythian warriors in their own languages, translated for the first time after more than 2,500 years. That's incredible. Yeah. Examples of newly discovered Amazon names in ancient forms of Circassian, deciphered on 6th century BC Greek vases, include and I'm probably going to really mess up pronouncing the actual names, but I will give you the translation. One of the names was, quote, worthy of armor. Another one meant, quote, one of the heroes or heroines, um, which you could just see, you know, like written by the side of one of the women because she didn't have a name, but you wanted to label her, quote, wearing or armed with a dagger or sword. And this one is my personal favorite, quote, hot flanks or eager sex. <laughs> and it's just adorable. And, quote, one who heads a council. Wow. It's that's just it's just so incredible. I know I keep saying incredible, but I can't think of another word. I'm just so flabbergasted. I know. Ancient Greek painters not only got the fashions and weapons of Amazons right on their vases, they even got the names right. And this shows that Scythians and Greeks must have interacted a lot. And Scythians must have been embedded in Greek society at many levels, including as spouses, warriors, merchants, slaves, and more. Some of these names must have been from Scythian myth, like the Scythian version of Heracles. The vase painters really made their money by painting familiar mythology scenes. So you just look at these and you have to wonder, were they painting well-known Scythian myths for Scythian clients? Exactly. Maybe some of these Greek vase painters had a really good Scythian merchant client who just bought all their vases. So they were always making these amazing vases with whatever the Scythian version of Heracles is or other myths. Exactly. And I think that's just so incredible and sadly lost to history because it wasn't written down. But people knew it via word of mouth. Absolutely. What Mayer did was especially cool because apart from a few words preserved here and there in the writings of Greek historians, like the word oiropa, or man-killer, reported by Herodotus, the Scythians themselves didn't write and their languages have been lost to time. However, Adrian Mayer also tells us that modern languages that still exist in the ancient Scythian region, like Circassian, have changed very little over time. So, based on this evidence, it's quite possible that languages once spoken by Scythian warriors still exist relatively unchanged today in the areas where they used to live. 
Yeah, that's such a cool thing to think about. I know. So another thing that the ancient Greeks got right about the Amazons and Scythian warrior women was the horses. The horses! This is another of my favorite parts. I mean, it's basically all my favorite parts. I love this part too. (laughs) Amazons and horses were linked in most ancient accounts. Penthesilia had a horse given to her by the wife of the North Wind. Greek translations of Amazon names frequently contained the word hippos, which meant horse, as in Hippolyta, which means releases the horses, according to Mayer, which is such a cool name. And ancient writers back this up. Ancient Greek speechwriter Lysias, living in the 4th and 3rd centuries BC, made the claim that Amazons were the first people to tame horses, and that may actually not be far from the truth, because archaeologists believe that horse domestication really did begin in Scythian territory on the Eurasian steppe among the much more ancient but very horse-focused Bowtie culture, which lived from around 3700 to 3100 BC. The ancient Scythians were very connected to their horses including the women. Adrian Mayer also mentions that in addition to weapons that really leveled the playing field between male and female strength, the Scythian women's horses also put them on a level playing field with men, giving them equal speed, stamina, and force in battle. A woman on horseback could be just as deadly as a man in battle. Adrian Mayer tells us that, quote, in nomad cultures, horses had individual names, even their own legends, and owners were sometimes known by their horse's name. And unique among horse riding cultures, ancient writers claimed that Scythians taught their horses to kneel or lie down on their bellies. This skill came in useful in an era without stirrups. A Scythian horse could lie down to stay out of sight while its owner stalked prey on the treeless step, or kneel to help its rider remount in battle if she's been knocked off. And... One of the rarest and most ancient breeds of horse, the Akalteke horse, originated in Turkmenistan right in the middle of Scythian territory. To this day, this is the official horse breed of Turkmenistan, and this breed of horse deserves a detour. If you've ever seen one, you would not forget it. These horses are the most beautiful things I've ever seen, with incredibly delicate lines and a coat that looks metallic. Some of these horses look really silver and gold. So, Jen, this is totally, like, a beautiful horse-sized shiny thing that I bet you would just love. Yeah, I kind of want one now. Can I have one now? I have no control over whether or not you buy a horse. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where you'd keep it, but I mean, you should work it out if you really want one. In ancient times, these were considered the most valuable horses alive, worth entire armies in price. Wars were fought over these horses, and we'll put pictures in the show notes so you can see why. They are still one of the most beautiful breeds of horses in the world. These horses are absolutely ancient. They are direct descendants of the horses ridden by the Masangeti, Queen Tamiris' people, as well as other Scythian tribes. In ancient times, they were sometimes referred to as the Nicene horses. By the time Herodotus mentioned them in his histories, about 2,500 years ago, the breed was already at least 500 years old. The Akalteke have been known for thousands of years, not just for their beauty, but for their incomparable speed and stamina. And this type of horse may have formed the foundational stock for famous breeds such as the Thoroughbred and Arabian. Adrian Mayer tells us that two types of horses are commonly found in Scythian graves. A short, stocky variety, tough little ponies like me, well-suited to a cold climate, as well as a tall, more delicate strain, adapted to life in harsh, arid climates. It's possible that some of these taller, willowy horses were ancestors of the Akalteke. 
Horses were central to Scythian culture. Nomad cultures didn't have a lot of places to store their wealth, but a lot of it went into elaborately wrought horse trappings made from precious metals and studded with gems. These treasures were typically buried with their owners, and so were the horses. Herodotus tells us that the Scythians often sacrificed the horses of their dead and buried them both under the same kurgan or grave mound. Mayer tells us of one particularly interesting find, quote, the most perfectly preserved mare of Paziric culture was 12 to 15 years old and 13 hands high. She was wearing elaborate regalia, including a stag mask with huge branching antlers and a beautiful red felt blanket with leather cutouts. She had suffered years of severe arthritis in her hind leg, suggesting that she had been a favorite cared for despite her lameness until the death of her owner. Mayer also notes that the taller, slender horses found in Scythian graves were much more likely to be old and lame than the smaller, stockier ponies, suggesting that these were particularly prized and only parted with far past their prime. Yeah, they got rid of those stocky little gen ponies much, much earlier. <laughs> oh, that's... This is so sad. <laughs> I mean, I'm of the belief that all horses are created equal and you should treasure your stocky little pony as much as you should treasure your tall, willowy horse. But... But... The world doesn't work that way. But, you know, people are jerks. So those were some of the things the ancient Greeks got right about the Scythians. The clothes, the weapons, the egalitarian culture, the tattoos, the horses, and the names. But there were things they got very, very wrong as well. And one of those was boobs. Yep, this is the episode on Amazons. And here is the part where we talk about boobs. Boobs. <laughs> we cannot avoid this topic. If you know one thing about the Amazons other than that they were badass women warriors, you probably know that they had one breast. This idea was going around from the earliest references to Amazon. Pseudo Apollodorus in his Bibliotheca makes this lurid claim about Amazons, quote, if ever they gave birth to children through intercourse with the other sex, they reared the females and they pinched off the right breasts that they might not be trammeled by them in throwing the javelin. Ow. But they kept the left breast that they might suckle. Ugh, just, ugh, just, why? Don't mess with the boobs, you guys. This is terrible. I'm getting, like, sympathy pains. I know, my poor right boob. I know, my, like, my, my boob, my right boob, boob, my, my boob, boob. Yeah, my boobs are very sensitive. They get sympathy pains. That's a very right-handed look at where they would have pinched off the boob, because if you were left-handed, then your javelin hand would be your left hand, and that boob would be of no use to you. Exactly, so would they have pinched off the left boob if you were left-handed, or would they just make you deal? I don't know. They probably would just make you deal. I mean, for a long time, that's what we did to left-handed people. They just had to adapt. So sorry, Jen, your, your right boob's coming off. Oh boy, <laughs> it's not going to make me any less clumsy <laughs> with my javelin. <laughs> <laughs> no, because now you're like, now you're off balance, right? There's like only one boob. So we're like tippy on that side. <laughs> yeah. So this, this boob, this boob, this boob removal was a common belief throughout the ancient world that the Amazons had only one breast. And we're going to call bullshit on that myth right here and right now. Sit down, Apollodorus. You've had too much wine and you should have put some water in it. Yeah, you've been spending way too much time in the Scythian weed sauna. Exactly. You know, maybe the two of us are qualified to school all these Greek men about boobs. <laughs> like how many boobs are there in this conversation? Four. Four boobs. There are four boobs in this conversation. So sit down, guys. You've been demoted. We're going to tell you about boobs. <laughs> um, 
The idea that women need to cut off their breasts to be competent archers and spear throwers is ridiculous. In his book on Amazon, John Mann states, quote, anyone watching the 2016 Olympics could see that women archers and javelin throwers are not impeded by breasts any more than female mounted archers are. If it helped to cut a breast off to improve performance, some hyper ambitious athlete would surely have done it. Kind of has a point there. There's lots of evidence in the graves of Scythian women warriors that points to a life of battle and hardship, but there's no skeletal evidence that the Scythians removed the breasts of their girl children. The Greeks weren't getting this idea from real life. So where did it come from? One possibility has to do with the name Amazon itself. This is a weird, mysterious word. It's not Greek, and we don't actually know what language it came from. It first appeared in the Iliad, maybe from around the 1200s BC, in a form that seemed to hint that it originally referred to both male and female warriors. Homer had to add another word with a feminine ending to make it clear that this was a group of all female warriors he was talking about. One thing Amazon doesn't mean, however, is one-breasted. Exactly. This is not what it means. The idea that the word Amazon meant single-breasted was first expressed around the 400s BC by a Greek named Hellenikos. He claimed that the word derived from a combination of the Greek suffix a, meaning without, and mastos, meaning breast. So what you get is without breast. The thing is, mastos and mazon are not the same word. If you look at them on the page, the only thing they have in common is they start with M and they have two syllables. That does not make them the same word, and whatever the word Amazon really meant, it was not this. Still, this idea caught on until it was repeated throughout the ancient world and then in later writings as gospel truth, but ancient artists never depicted Amazons as one-breasted because that would not be very artistic, I guess. I feel like a lot of the ancient artists were probably guys and did not have boobs to begin with. Probably not. But they were all about symmetry, so they would have wanted to paint them with two boobs, right? Exactly, even if they believed that they only had one boob. There's also another possibility, though, that real life may have given ancient Greeks some reinforcement of this idea. Scythian women of the Caucasus region didn't sear off their daughter's breasts, but according to Mayer, they did dress in tight leather vests or corsets to support their breasts while they rode horses. This garment was well known in formerly Scythian regions in more recent times. A German historian in the Caucasus, Julius von Klaproth, even remarked in 1807 that, quote, young unmarried females compress their breasts with a close leather jacket in such a manner that they are scarcely perceptible. There was even a folk tradition that on a woman's wedding night, her husband should slowly and tenderly unlace the many complicated ties of her leather corset as a demonstration of his patience and devotion. But when we were looking into the research on this, I kind of had a thought as to why the Scythians might have got that they only had one boob. Because if you think about it, if you were nursing a baby, you would have one boob totally out of that corset and the other one might still be restrained. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. I mean, we don't actually know that this is how Scythian women nurse their babies, but maybe they undid part of their corset and just had one boob out, but it looked like the other boob wasn't there because the corset was so tight. Exactly. So it's entirely possible that this is a very ancient garment originating with warrior women of the steppes, and it's likely that the Scythian aesthetic included tightly bound breasts so that active women could ride horses and shoot arrows unimpeded. In the Nart Sagas, epic folk tales from the heart of Scythian country passed down through oral tradition, a hero even makes fun of a woman for having, quote, breasts like old bouncing pumpkins, which I just think is hilarious. (laughs) You should be so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I grew up riding horses, and trust me, you do not want to ride a horse without a bra on. 
there's very few things I want to do without a prompt. <laughs> yeah, but especially riding a horse because you are kind of bouncing around a lot. So now I want to talk about something else that they got really, really wrong. And that's the man-hating and the boy-naming. Amazon mythology is complex and Amazons were depicted in ancient Greece as both hating and oppressing men and having free, enthusiastically consenting sex with them. So the picture here is muddled to say the least. But one of the myths surrounding the Amazons was that they were a nation of man haters. This crops up in the Daughter of Ares myth that we talked about in the last episode, where the first Amazon queen adopted the custom of maiming her nation's boy children so that they'd be willing to stay home while the women went out raiding. It's also in the Hippocratic Corpus, the ancient medical treatise, quote, some tell a story how the Amazonian women dislocate the joints of their male children while mere infants, some at the knee and others at the hip joint, that they may be maimed and that the male sex may not conspire against the female. In some accounts, Amazon women actually killed their boy children or gave them away to be raised separately by their fathers. But no evidence has been found amongst real Scythian cultures that young boys were systematically maimed. It's possible that this misunderstanding stems from the ancient Greeks' own misguided approach to gender relations. This was a culture that believed men had to be dominant over women. But beyond that, someone had to be dominant in any relationship. So if the Amazons weren't submissive to men, they must oppress their own men. It could be that the ancient Greeks had to believe this. It was the only way they could really make sense of pressure proud Scythian warrior women. The last thing we're going to talk about here that the Greeks got wrong about the Scythians was the Amazon nation. One of the myths perpetrated in Amazon stories is this idea that the Amazons had a kingdom of warlike women made up of only women or warlike women and oppressed men. However, the archaeology paints a different picture. While some respected warrior women were definitely leaders of their own tribes, what we're seeing here is a picture of many small, scattered, mobile tribes of people, not a large, settled kingdom. Scythian women certainly didn't have a capital city of their own on the banks of the Thermodon. This is kind of like one of those things you see in Star Trek, which I didn't really watch much, but I I know the trope, wherein they land on a planet and every single person on that planet is from the same place and they all have the same customs and the same cultures. But that doesn't actually work in reality. Yeah, like everyone on the planet wears the same outfit. I guess I can see that because the ancient Greeks are just saying that all the Scythians are the same and they all live in the same city as opposed to them being many different diverse tribes of people. Which makes no sense to me because the ancient Greeks were all made up of city-states and none of those city-states were necessarily the same or treated people the same. So why would they think that the Scythians would just be one big nation where everyone was the same? That's kind of like a basic thing about othering, though, isn't it? Where the ancient Greeks couldn't tell any of the Scythians apart. They all look the same to them. Yeah, it's deeply upsetting. Yeah, like so many things in the ancient world. (laughs) It's a thing that happened a lot in the ancient world, though. Like, they called everybody barbarians. True. So let's get back to the Scythians. Instead of living in one capital city, they lived in small, tightly knit tribes or clans, moving between winter and summer pastures, fanning out into new territory to raid and graze their animals, carrying their belongings with them. There were some settlements and towns, for example, Scythian Neapolis, a Scythian and Greek populated city in what's now the Ukraine. The Goths destroyed it in the third century AD because Alaric's people were not nice. I wouldn't say they were they were nice. No, that wouldn't be a thing I would call them. I mean, they like to burn it down. That's just what the Goths did. They did. But there's no evidence to suggest a vast, organized, single-sex nation of women. Adrian Mayer gives us an amazing picture of Amazon life, and I have to give you guys this quote. Quote, 
In the glimpses of Amazon life we can glean from ancient Greek literature and art, the women warriors were passionately devoted to riding horses and perfecting guerrilla-style combat skills for defense, raiding, and conquest, wielding swords, bows, and spears, and fighting and dying valiantly. But the independent women of the Black Sea, Caucasus steppe region are also portrayed by Greek writers as taking time out for such peaceful activities as capturing, training, and milking their horses, chasing game, harvesting fruit, having sex, getting tattooed, raising tomboys and delivering sons to their fathers, fashioning leather into helmets, clothing, boots, and belts, swimming and grooming, inhaling hemp smoke, dancing, playing music, and performing sacrifices and religious rites. In short, the picture of Amazon daily life imagined by the Greeks conforms in large part to the glimpses of the flexible, fluid nomad life on the steppes that we can gather from history, archaeology, and anthropology. And I included that whole quote because honestly, this sounds like the best life. What am I doing with my life, Jen? Why have I not run away to join the Scythians? Jenny, I know how you can do it. I've got a plan. I learned this in our last episode, right? Uh Uh-huh. What's the plan? Okay. So you go up to them, you know, you and I on our little horses, and we make our little camp about like, you know, a safe distance away. And then every night when they're sleeping, we move just a little bit closer. Oh my God, we gaslight them. <laughs> yeah, because we learned that in the Sarmatians myth and it all worked out okay. And they took them in. Yeah, so we basically gaslight the Scythians into taking us in. I think this is a great idea. I don't see anything wrong with it. <laughs> Do you not? Because I see a lot of things wrong with it. <laughs> I mean, I'm being sarcastic, but maybe my sarcastic voice isn't that obvious. <laughs> maybe I need to work on my sarcastic voice. <laughs> maybe I need to work on my plans because this was not a good one. <laughs> I mean, we can try it, see what happens. (laughs) But hold up a sec. Back up. Did we say the Amazon nation was a myth? We did say that. Yeah, we said that. Well, that's not entirely true. There was no nation on the banks of the Thermodon consumed by their hatred of men, maiming their boy children and burning off the breasts of their girl children. That's true. But there were armies and nations run by women warlike women who led soldiers into battle. The ancient Greeks and Romans fought alongside them and against them. And we'll get into some of those individual warrior queens and generals known during this time in the next episode. That's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, come and talk to us on social. We're on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan and on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And we also have a website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And if you like what we do and want to help out the podcast, there are two easy ways. One way is to leave us a review in whatever app you listen to us on. These reviews really help us, and we love to pass them back and forth and just swoon over them. We read all the reviews because we're obsessive like that. We really wanted to shout out to some of these reviews, and I know that some of these are really old, and we haven't shouted them out before because, as we mentioned in our last episode, we record these episodes months and months in advance. We're recording this now in August, and it probably won't be out until until maybe the end of September or the beginning of October. But we really appreciate everyone who's left us a review and we do want to get a chance to shout them out on the podcast. So we're going to start doing that from now on. Today, I'm going to read a review from the UK iTunes store and it is from KAR and it's a five-star review that says, I love this. Funny and informative. I'm very interested in ancient history and this is a perfect way to get information in a quirky way. Keep up the great work, ladies. And 
Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. My review that I'm reading today, this is from Lindsay Lags, And Lindsay Lags is actually somebody I know, Lindsay Lags a lot. She is a porn journalist, and she just wrote an amazing book called Watching Porn and Other Confessions of an Adult Entertainment Journalist. Super interesting and fascinating. And she's also one of the co-creators of Oneshi Press, which is a really cool press that does progressive fantasy and sci-fi graphic novels and art. And they're, they're absolutely amazing. You should check them out. There's actually a link to them on our website. So she says, maybe it's too early to write a review since I've only heard the first episode, but I love this idea. I enjoy the banter between the two hosts and I feel like it will only get better with time. I can't wait for more episodes. Jen, I feel like people really like our banter. I think they like our banter. Maybe we'll keep it up. That is it for our reviews, but we'll read more later. And if you'd like to do even more to contribute, and this is always massively, massively appreciated, you can donate to our Ko-Fi Coffee Ko-Fi Fund. I just can't pronounce this word. I'm sorry to everyone at Ko-Fi for coffee, Ko-Fi for consistently mangling your extremely simple website name. The link is on the homepage on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. It's the button that says buy us a latte. And we massively appreciate all the help we can get. So thank you so much because every little bit helps. Yeah, thank you so much. And we'll see you in two weeks. 